Welcome to the AUA's Advancements in Genitourinary Cancer Immunotherapy Treatment Series, webinar number one, Immuno-Oncology, A New Class of Drugs. Thank you to course director, Dr. Kostas Wallace, and faculty, Dr. Joshua Meek, for joining us today. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. AstraZeneca, Bristol Miles, Myers Squibb, Merck and Company, Inc. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. Kostas Lalas. Great, welcome everybody. Uh, I'd like to go over the learning objectives uh, for tonight's webinar. Uh, at the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to Number one, restate the role of the immune system in cancer prevention and elimination. Number two, discuss the effects of immune system checkpoint inhibitors on the immunosuppressive activity of tumor cells. And number three, review clinical investigations into the efficacy of immune system checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of GU cancers. Uh, we are going to get started. This is the first webinar of a four-webinar series on immuno-oncology, a new class of drugs. Uh, we are joined here today by uh, Dr. Joshua Meeks. Dr. Meeks is an assistant professor of urology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. He received his MD and PhD degrees from Northwestern in 2005 completed his urology residency at Northwestern University in 2011, and a urologic oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2012. Dr. Meek's laboratory research is focused on the molecular pathways involved in the progression of urothelial carcinoma, including epigenetic mechanism of gene regulation in bladder cancer and the immune response to tumor mutations. He is the TM Bladder Site Coordinator for the GU Committee for SWOG and the Translation Medicine Coordinator for SWOG Studies 1602 and Co-Chair of 1806. Dr. Meek's clinical efforts focus on urologic oncology with a primary focus on bladder cancer. He has research funding from the NIH, DOD, VHA, VHA and the Prostate Cancer Foundation. He is a true surgeon scientist, juggling both a busy clinical service in urologic oncology with his research lab, and he's extremely well published in both the basic science literature as well as more contemporary urologic literature, and we are certainly thrilled to have him join us today. Josh? Thanks, Dr. Wallace. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here, and I really wanted to thank the AUA for inviting me to participate in this webinar. This is an incredibly exciting time to be a urologist and to have an interest in oncology and immunology. So I'm going to start our, uh, our webinar with uh, here are my disclosures. And tonight we're going to be talking about the immune system and really how it interacts to keep cancer away, as well as also how it uh, is involved in uh, checkpoint regulation and, and therapy. So at the very basis of how we look at cancer, and all of these different features are different things that cancer has figured out in order to evade, you know, how all of our uh, therapies and 
and they found a way to get away from our immune system. But the evasion of the immune system is probably one of the ones that we've really kind of exploded in science in the last, you know, five to ten years. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of what immuno-oncology is. At the very, very basics, there are three key points here. You have to have a tumor neoantigen. You have to have immune cells getting to the tumor. And then there's regulation. And that's really all three of those are different points that we're going to talk about today and hopefully uh, kind of get into the details. So let's start at the very beginning. Neoantigens, what are they? And I think, you know, the, probably the best way to, to look at this is, you know, we all know that DNA is the building blocks of, of all of our cells, and that becomes protein. And, you know, there's a lot of negative selection that occurs when we're children to get rid of these immune cells that, you know, recognize normal protein. Uh, and autoimmunity, in fact, is when you're not able to regulate those cells. Well, in cancer, you know, it's a little bit of a balance. So if you have mutations, those mutations result in a change in amino acid, and those are actually recognized by many of the T cells. So you can imagine having more mutations would make the tumor potentially grow faster, but that's also going to make the tumor more recognizable by the immune system. What's interesting is that obviously not all neoantigens are the same or, or as immunogenic. Some are more immunogenic than others. And so this is some of the variability in why, for example, maybe some mutations don't cause cancer because they get removed, and others are very uh, are more silent and can tend to persist. And we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Can't talk about cancer without talking about the Cancer Genome Atlas. And this is the PanCan data, so thousands of patients uh, millions of our tax dollars spent looking at the very building blocks of tumors. And one of the things that we really figured out when we put all these tumors and we list them on the, on one side we have tumors with very few mutations, that's down here. On the other end of the spectrum are tumors with very high mutations. And this is a logarithmic scale. So you can see that I tried to highlight our GU cancers here in yellow. So prostate, kidney cancer, and then bladder cancer. And you can see bladder obviously has the highest number of mutations. This tends to correspond with the highest number of neoantigens. Now, interestingly, I've also highlighted in blue here, at the extreme, we have melanoma, lung cancer, and bladder cancer. The things that they all have in common, obviously, are they're cancers that are initiated by carcinogens. So melanoma, UV light, lung cancer, smoking, bladder cancer, at least, at least half the patients we know are smokers. So high number of mutations because there's a high amount of carcinogen exposure. And not surprisingly, these are the tumors that respond the best to immunotherapy. What's interesting, if you go to the middle and you go to kidney cancer, there's not that many mutations, but very responsive to immunotherapy. And that's because one theory there is that it's the kind of mutation. So there's a lot of frame shifts which cause a different kind of protein from that point on, and that tends to make these very immunogenic. That's one of the theories at least. So this is data, and I, I'm, we'll try not to talk about uh, as, as much about individual cancers, but this is data from bladder cancer. This is the TCGA that was updated in 2017. And this, on one side, is a plot of total mutation burden, and next to it is a Kaplan-Meier curve uh, for neoantigen load. And you can see, obviously, very similar curves. The blue is patients with the highest number of total mutation burden, 
You can see their highest number of new antigens. And you can see that that's actually associated with the best survival. Realizing that this is TCGA data, so none of these patients really received neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So this isn't a therapy response. This is just prognosis. Once again, having a high total mutation burden, in this case, is definitely associated with a better survival, likely because there's greater neoantigens, greater immune response. Now, this certainly does affect therapy, too. So very nice data from tumor melanomas treated with ipilimumab on uh, the right, and then uh, lung cancer treated with pembrolizumab. And you can see in both cases, patients with the highest total mutation burden tended to have better survival. So it's not just prognostic, but it's also predictive of response. If you have more mutations, even when treated with checkpoint inhibitors, that tends to, when these tumors, when the break is taken off, uh, this tends to lead to better response, once again, because of neoantigen. So that neoantigen is a key part of this. You need them likely to activate an immune response. This is going to be an important figure. This drawing really summarizes how we think immunosurveillance occurs. So this starts off with normal cells, and either through carcinogen exposure or over time, this leads to the formation of an early tumor. And you can see here that there's two types of blue cells. The blue cells here in the middle are highly immunogenic, probably higher number of neoantigens or more responsive. And then you see the dark blue cells, and those are less immunogenic. These are the immune cells that tend to identify those. Immunoediting occurs. So in this case, the highly immunogenic cells are removed. So that's probably why a lot of people don't end up with cancer as they get older. But unfortunately, those, lowly, those low immunogenic cells are not recognized by the immune system. They're able to rev up this immunosuppression, and that leads to stability. And then escape occurs, and they develop this stroma that sort of encapsulates the tumor. And so this is kind of our, our stages of immunosurveillance. You have tumor development. You have uh, elimination of the poorly, uh, of the highly immunogenic cells equilibrium, followed by immunosuppression, and escape. So just before we go any further, we need to talk about immunogenicity and what cells are involved. And we, we've kind of broken this down generally into two phases. We have an innate immune response and a more slow adaptive immune response. And they have different functions. So the innate immune response, that's literally everything from the beginning of an insult. So it's rapid, it's pattern recognition, we think a lot of the early BCG responses from this innate immunity. You have revved up cytokines, co-stimulatory molecules. The goal of this is to identify the pathogen, to phagocytize or eat it up if you can. And that's mostly done by macrophages, dendritic cells, a lot of NK cells, and granulocytes. That can be contrasted with the adaptive immune response that really is dependent on that innate immunity. And it's slower, it's slower, but it's more specialized. It involves gene arrangements, clonal expansions. That's really where our T cells and B cells come in. The key thing to that is it's got a very long memory. So if that insult comes up again, you're going to get the same response, at the, you know, likely even greater response, because the, the, all those pieces are still there. Once again, those are lymphocytes and some in K cells. So why do we care about this now? I mean, wh why are we in an age of revolutionary immunotherapy? 
And I, I think the big thing, when we look previously up until, I would almost say about 10 years ago, um, we were looking at mostly vaccines. We were trying to engineer T cells, but we didn't have the tools. And we were thinking about cytokines, that you just, if you get enough cytokines, you could get enough immune activation, that may be enough. Well, now we know that it's really not about getting engineering, it, it, although we've come back to that with CAR T cells. Mostly now, we're, the crux of our interest is in checkpoint and, and in regulation of that immune response. So that leads us into our checkpoint inhibitors. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about this today. A lot of the mechanism of what we're going to talk about today is the program death receptor and CTLA-4 and how that involves in T cell activity. And so when you look at T cells, the key thing about T cells is that they can be regulated. And, you know, we've kind of split this up into two. On one side, we have factors that upregulate T cell activity. And so for those, if we want to get a greater immune response, you need agonistic or activating antibodies. We probably haven't seen as much of this as we would anticipate, although there's some OX40 and there's some CD28 and get our ligands kind of uh, uh, antibodies that are, are making their way through. We've seen a lot more of blocking antibodies on inhibitory things. So we're going to talk about CTLA-4. We'll talk about PD-1. There's some data that SIM-3 and LAG-3 are very interesting. These are our exhaustion markers. When the T cell expresses this, it inhibits its function. So if you can block them therapeutically, the T cells become invigorated and activated. So Josh, and, and looking at this, um, and I know the the analogy is a driving analogy. You're you're taking your foot off the you're taking your foot off the uh, brake, which is with the inhibitory blockers, and then you're uh, you're stepping on the gas. So hypothetically, you could actually use um, you could use targets on either side of this uh, diagram right. uh, in order to drive a response. Right, and, and there hasn't been that many studies that have done that. I mean, uh, I would put a plug in, uh, for, for example, for bladder cancer. We often will, there's some studies now giving a checkpoint and then combining it with BCG. And the thought is the BCG is the activation, and then the checkpoint is going to get rid of any exhaustion. Oh, interesting. So, great. So I, I wanted to kind of walk through the mechanism. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to know this uh, biology because, you know, really at the end of the day, it's, it's how we start. When we think about how these work, why they don't work, it, it's kind of important to look at the pieces. So starting with CTLA-4, and this is a really nice uh, diagram of what's going on. So just to walk through this cycle. So all of this starts with, the cancer cell that is found in the tissue, and it's, you know, constantly giving off, you know, exosomes, it's giving off pieces of protein and, and DNA, and that's being kind of identified and chewed up by the antigen-presenting cells. Those make their way to local lymph nodes, uh, where they prime and activate the T cells. They then traffic and become cytotoxic T cells, end up going through the the lining of the blood vessels, and they're looking, those T cell receptors are looking for that antigen again. That's where the T cell, you know, cancer cell interaction occurs, and when it recognizes it, it kills more cancer cells, once again, releasing more antigen. So this is kind of, the, this is kind of what occurs over and over again, but we, you know, as you see it, it, that tends to get a little stalled. 
So, so going going back to the prior slide, um, mm -hmm. I I love I always love this slide because it's the cell immunity cycle, um, and looking at this in combination with the slide prior, which showed the activation as well as the inhibitory molecules, you can see there's there's countless areas where you can manipulate this cycle in order to again drive the cellular immune response against these tumors. So I'm sure that, uh, and I know that you're going to go over some of these today, uh, but it's very, very exciting. And like I said, discovering this whole exhaustion and T-cell regulation, uh, you know, this has been going on, obviously, for a very long time, but discovering those molecules and, and how they're involved is really kind of what's led to the breakthrough in immunotherapy. So this is showing, and I want to point out, this is a, we're going to talk first about CTLA-4, and that works at the lymph node. So that's right here. So, right, so you have the antigen-presenting cell on top, and it's interacting with the T cell at the lymph node. And so when the two encounter each other, you know, without antigen, nothing happens. But if the antigen-presenting cell has an MHC, and that's loaded with a 9-amino acid neoantigen. So that little piece of tumor, 9-amino acids, if that's not recognized, if that's considered foreign, that leads to T-cell activation. Uh, and the antigen-presenting cell is expressing that. And because it's, it's, it's the, the antigen-presenting cell is active, you've got co-stimulatory molecules, CD86, those bind to CD28, and then the, together, the T cell is active, and that really fires up the T cell. The problem is, and our immune system has evolved over time, that for every one activation, there's two to three breaks. Otherwise, you end up with autoimmunity. So once that T cell is activated, it's got to be turned on. And so that off switch, one of them, is CTLA-4. And CTLA-4 is a receptor in the T cell that competes for CD80, 86 with CD28, and that leads to T cell inhibition. Well, this therapy is really directed at blocking CTLA4, and that's an, an antagonistic antibody that functionally blocks CTLA4 and allows that T cell to be reinvigorated and activated. Now, I think that's a different pathway because you think about that's occurring across lymph nodes, very different than what occurs with the program death receptor or PDL1 pathway. So first of all, it's occurring in a different place. So that's a, the PD1, PDL1 pathway we think is mostly occurring in the tissue. And in this case, we have the T cell interacting with the tumor. So this is the T cell that's kind of honed its way. It's, it's making its way to the, to the tissues. And in this case, we see the, the T cell is looking for, for tumor. And these tumors are obviously ex expressing some antigen. It recognizes, the T cell recognizes that, that tumor, and that results in cell death, interferon pr production, re release of porphyrins, granzymes. But the T cells figure, or the tumors figure that out, and one of its mechanisms to evade this cell death is the production of PDL1. So when that tumor expresses PDL1, it turns the brakes on and it shuts off the T cell, which you can see here. That T cell, even though it's there, even though it's been primed, it's now exhausted. 
So the real reason why cells express PD-L1 is that all of our cells, our normal cells, express PD-L1. Otherwise, our T cells will be constantly causing autoimmunity. And interestingly, in the knockout mice, when you knock out PD-L1, the phenotype is autoimmune. So these drugs work, either anti-PD-L1 or anti-PD-1 work, by inhibiting either the PD-1 ligand or PD-1 overall. And that results in T cell activation. So looking, that, the, you know, so looking at the uh, CTLA-4 pathway and the PD-1 pathway, essentially this, this is the body's way of, of, you know, preventing, just like you said, autoimmunity. So that's what right. we're really taking advantage of here uh, is um, turning off that break where a body, where the immune system would recognize something as self. Um, so, and we're just looking at two different areas in the immune cell cycle where, where we're taking advantage of that. So, um, that's great. Thank you. And I'd say that, you know, we give these drugs and we see effects, but to say why they work exactly, and the differences between PD-1, anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 therapies and the different antibodies, we have some idea, but really, at the end of the day, at a molecular level, there's a lot of work to be done. So we think they work by activating T cells. There's some data that you get proliferation of T cells when you give these therapies. There may be some data that you inhibit T regulatory cells. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know that they're effective on our cancers but to say how and exactly why they're working, I think there's still a lot of data, a lot of things that we can do to figure that out. So coming back to our questions, we started with why does immunotherapy work? Well, once again, you need immune antigens, you need immune infiltration, and you need immune regulation. I, I tend to think about individual patients and why our therapies work or don't work um, based on this immunogram. And very nice sort of description of here are all the factors that are involved in immune activation. So you need tumors got to be foreign. You have to have lymphocytes that come in there. It's got to be an immune infil infiltration. These are all the things that can go wrong. And so in this patient, for example, they really don't have a checkpoint. <clears throat> and so this is really where, you know, individual patients, if you could think about them, those are individual ways we can maybe personalize this approach. Well, I think the, th the next question that we've all started to address is, depending on the kind of cancer, you know, you, you have anywhere from a 20 to a 30% response of patients to immunotherapy. So this is great. We have plateaus. We have survival. We even have people now treated that are off therapy uh, because their tumor is gone. But what about everybody else? And there's a huge population of patients that we're just not able to be successful with. And we don't know is the short answer, but a lot of thought is that many of these PD-1-resistant tumors have developed this stroma. So this is the tumor microenvironment, and there's a lot of factors that can contribute to this. We think a lot of uh, myelo-derived suppressor cells, fibroblasts, you know, that into macrophages, all of them are contributing to developing this stromal protective niche that really is blocking the immune function, even, even with immunotherapy. And so th this is another diagram sort of looking at those pieces 
that, you know, how is, what are the factors that really determine immune response? So, you know, four, four pretty straightforward ones are, you know, you need a high total mutation burden. We, we talked about that, so a high number of neoantigens. You need a low intratumoral tumor heterogeneity. That means that there's a low number of, high number of clonal neoantigens. So you have very few differences for the immune system to recognize. You can imagine the more heterogeneity we have, uh, the more different this tumor is, the harder it is for the immune system to develop an immune response. And really what you need to do is you'll need a lot more different kinds of T cells. That's shown here. So you have a highly clonal CD8 tumor infiltrate. And then there's some data that actually having deficiencies in DNA repair machinery, once again, may be increasing the number of neoantigens, and that can contribute to a better immune response. Looking overall at different tumor types, this was a kind of well-publicized figure with the x-axis showing the number of mutations. So, and this is once again logarithmic. And on the y-axis, we have overall response to PDL1, PD1 inhibition. And you can see that there's a pretty, you know, lot, uh, straightforward, straight line that, that the higher number of mutations, the greater the immune response. And there, it's not perfect, but in general, I, I think you think about the tumors that are more likely to respond have a, have a higher number of neoantigens. And this is the checkpoint therapy across tumor types. So this is sort of a therapeutic look at the last immunity picture that we talked about. And you can see at every point there's different therapies, and, and this is from 2013, so you can imagine the last five years, there's a lot more of these. But there's different agents that are aimed at every individual part of this and that's likely where the next steps are. So we're just going to spend the last few minutes talking about what's kind of on the horizon. And I don't think you have to look very far to see this. So if you look at lung and you look at melanoma, they're kind of leading the way to what's going to be coming into to GU cancers. So these are two papers published in the last six months, and they're both at uh, AACR. So neoantigen PD-1 blockade, you can see that this was just a pretty small series of patients that received treatment with neoantigen PD-1 therapy before they went to resection. And you can see compared to the pretreatment, the, the post-treatment tumor is much smaller. You can see a pretty significant fibroblastic infiltrate. Uh, I can tell you that for bladder cancer, there's already been two trials. One is Abacus, Tizalizumab, uh, and uh, Pure One, which was uh, Pembrolizumab, already showing about a 40%, 50% response of bladder tumors to pretreatment therapy. So I, I think this is coming uh, in the pretreatment setting. So we'll likely see a lot more of this, once again, in renal cancer, potentially also in, uh, in prostate cancer as well, certain kinds, obviously. Looking after therapy, so this was data from melanoma. These were stage three melanoma, so a high likelihood of recurrence. And you can see in the setting of PD-1 therapy, significantly improved survival in those patients that received one year of, um, of checkpoint therapy. And this is what's going out two years from now. So giving this in the adjuvant. And so there's a lot of these trials that we're seeing now. Can you prevent recurrence by giving checkpoint therapy? And there's some so thought that surgery... Go ahead. I was curious. Uh, do you have that new adjuvant trial open at your institution? 
No, we 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 do not. There, um, you know, there's there's some obviously coming out. We we have trials now that are starting to look. Um, the, the the neoadjuvant trials in the U.S. are, from what I understand, pretty close to accrual. We've seen a lot more trials come through in the last few months that are neoadjuvant followed by adjuvant. So they're they're all together, and. Um, right. Some of the slides you'll see in the next one uh, that we can talk about are combining those mm -hmm. with chemotherapy as well. Interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering what it's like to operate on somebody who's had neoadjuvant with, uh, with one of these checkpoint inhibitors. Do you get this, this you know, desmoplastic response that you typically see post-chemotherapy? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The other question that um, I was originally pretty concerned about was, uh, do we think the pathologic response will equate to survival. We know chemotherapy, you know, if they're a PR, if they're T0, you know, or CIS, that's a very good prognosis. Immunotherapy, we don't know that yet, but so far, at least with the two trials, uh, once again, Abacus and Pure One, very good response, anywhere from 40 to 50%. And interestingly, um, some of the early biomarker work, if you have, you know, high TMB, if you have, uh, DNA damage repair mutations, uh, and there's not many of those, uh, there's up to a 90% response for some of those patients. So I think once you start putting biomarkers with this therapy, it's going to have significant payoffs. This data is um, from Pimberl. It's This is kind of what I was alluding to, that uh, there's some thought that the chemotherapy may have a, an effect on this. So this is Pimberlizumab plus chemotherapy and so chemo plus IO in the metastatic space, and you can see very significant improvement in survival in this group. And, you know, why this may be, um, why this may be effective, you know, there's some data that obviously to respond, you're probably better if you're PDL1 positive, but in this setting, chemotherapy may be making tumors more infiltrated, and so you're getting those T cells in, and then the IO is sort of kicking in as well. Finally, I think the, the last kind of paradigm here is uh, this paper, uh, which from lung cancer with nivolumab plus ipilimumab. So this is combination checkpoint therapy, so CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade. And what's really impressive here is that you can see that this is just six months out. We can already begin to see that those survival curves have plateaued, uh, and they're pretty high. You can look and see that that's, you know, about 50% of patients. Realize, though, that this is a biomarker-driven trial with high TMB. So uh, I think, once again, checkpoint blockade, dual together. We've seen this in renal cancer. Um, so I think that's going to be on the, on the horizon. Further aspects that are outside of checkpoints, and I kind of wanted to separate checkpoints from the other forms of therapy. You know, there's a lot of excitement about CAR-T therapy or, you know, engineered T cells. And, just for everyone's sort of uh, thoughts so that we're all talking about the same thing, that's literally taking a patient's T cells, inserting a chimeric antigen receptor, that's where the CAR is, and then putting that in the T cells, growing them out, and then infusing those back in. So this is very exciting because this is literally trying to attack individual neoantigens. Right now, a lot of this is being done with CD19, the B-cell receptor, and it sort of makes sense for different kinds of lymphoma. I think the hard part is the, all, you know, 
uh, all of what we're seeing with the heterogeneity of our tumors, for example, for bladder cancer, you don't have one antigen. So it may be that if you can take a patient's antigens and develop this, this may be the next step, but for now it's been largely isolated to, to individual antigens. Vaccine-based therapies, you know, I think vaccine therapies are, are once again kind of coming back as far as our interest. And there's a lot of ways that you can do vaccine therapies, and, that, and that's what this diet, this cartoon sort of shows. So you can start with uh, taking tumor cells that are irradiated so they don't proliferate, putting uh, immunostimulatory cytokines in them so that they express these cytokines, injecting those into the skin. Those tumor cells that are now expressing a lot of, for example, GMCSF are recognized by dendritic cells, and those go to the lymph node. Another way to do it is to take the dendritic cells in a dish, sort of activate them with either peptides or viral vectors or tumor lysate, and then putting those dendritic cells back in. And then a final way, in some, depending on the antigen, you can actually take the individual antigens, either plasmid DNA, disinject DNA, and for some, that's all, that's all that's needed. That's enough to activate the dendritic cells, which then go to the lymph node. They activate the T cells, and that goes and, and attacks the tumor. So vaccines have kind of come back in. Once again, you can imagine you could do a vaccine therapy and add a checkpoint to it. Um, a lot of excitement about that. There's some people talking and showing you can do that, for example, in the bladder, that you could you know, inject the, the site in the bladder with the tumor that activates that site at a checkpoint, and then that may be uh, a potential potential way to go. So, Josh, could you comment on uh, the difference between standard vaccine therapy and the CAR T treatments? Because they seem a little bit similar. Yeah, I, I think that you know probably the the way to really look at this is you know the chimeric antigen receptor, the CAR T, is really involved in engineering that T-cell receptor and working on T-cells. So the main focus of CAR-T is engineering that T-cell. The T-cell is really, what you're, really what's going to do all the heavy lifting, and you're engineering that to go after one antigen. I think you can contrast that with vaccine therapy, which is you may have a peptide, you may have DNA, and you're just kind of injecting that into a site. So the thought is that you're hoping that's going to kind of work. Um, you're not doing any engineering to the T cell. What I showed in the middle here with, um, with the dendritic cells, that's got some similarities where you're engineering the DC and you're putting that, you're injecting that in the skin and you're hoping that goes to the right site. That, that's probably the, that has some features that are very similar to CAR-T. Um, but CAR-T's had a very good response uh, in, in certain populations of lymphoma. You know, going back to your, one of your initial slides on, you know, innate versus adaptive immunity, the dendritic cells were more, well, I guess you're innate. seeing more, yeah. right, they were innate, but the T cells are the adaptive. So you're probably Correct. seeing more, more of, a, of, a, of a memory with the, with the, um, the CAR-T therapy then. Uh, so it's not only... Yeah, it not only works initially, but keeps on working. And, and there's, been, there's been some reports for folks who are responding to CAR-T to do, doing very well. So it's exciting for those responders. I, I think we needed a, 
talk about the microbiome because that's that's certainly more and more and more becoming a very interesting topic. Uh, this is a busy slide, and I just want to talk about a few things here. Uh, this is data from melanoma looking at different strains of bacteria found in the mouth versus the gut. And you can see there's a lot of bacterial isoforms. But the key thing, the difference between responders here in R versus non-responders is the amount of heterogeneity. So if you have a lot of heterogeneity, these are heterogeneous tumor, uh, bacteria, you, had a, you are more likely to be a responder. So the high heterogeneity of bacteria. So it's not that, you know, and, and there's some thought that there are some bacteria that are better than others. You can see here this is all the responders tended to have these strains of bacteria versus the non-responders here. Uh, so it's been challenging to kind of compare the different studies across board to say what are the best bacteria. Uh, I think right now we're sort of in a state where it, we're trying to get a sense that it appears to play a role, but we don't know what are the best ones. And th this is kind of very nice data showing that if you take a germ-free mouse <coughs> and if you colonize it with donor microbiota from either responders and non-responders, and then you challenge it with the tumor, you can clearly see that, you know, that the tumor grows greater in a non-responder, in a, a mouse exposed to non-responder microbiome versus mice exposed to uh, microbiome from responder. So it appears to be transferable, and that would, that's really what you would want to find, for example, if you had responders at your center that were getting checkpoint therapy or even you know, I, I'd say there's folks even down the street near Chicago looking at BCG. If you could give them the right bacteria, you could potentially alter the immune response. One thing that we're just starting to really appreciate is that we look at the trial data and we looked at overall response, but it looks like gender is playing a huge role in how people are responding. And so this is just a bit of a forest plot uh, kind of comparing you know, different disease states, so melanoma uh, and other and lung cancer versus others, uh, first line, second line, PD-1, CTLA-4. And you can see that in, all, in, in nearly all studies, when you look at them all together, the red bars, which are the women, uh, tended to have uh, less of a benefit. So, and that's pretty consistent across the board here. So what that is and what's driving that, we don't really know. But I think you know we need to be cognizant of it and really address it. And that, that's the end of my slide, Dr. Ross. Great. Um, there was a, a couple of questions coming in from the audience. Um, uh, the first one is: uh, Can you comment on any trials and data on intravesical installation of IO agents for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? And so I can tell you that I think we have the only trial uh, in the United States that has this available. So uh, we have a trial with pembrolizumab, and uh, it's for BCG refractory bladder cancer. Uh, we've recruited eight patients to it so far, and the thought is that, you know, BCG works. Uh, in nearly every patient, BCG mm -hmm. is effective, but in some patients, BCG stop work, stops working. And there's a lot of nice data, most of this is immunohistochemistry data from Brent Inman, uh, that if you look at BCG-treated tumors, they tend to, the granulomas are circled with pdl one expressing cells. So our thought was that the BCG, while effective, is getting shut down by a checkpoint by PD-1. And so, you know, perhaps those are patients you can give uh, a pdl one 
or a PD-1 inhibitor to in the bladder uh, and see if it's effective. To our knowledge, I think we're the only folks, uh, at least in the U.S., who has that, who, who, are, who are doing this. I'll tell you, the folks who are treated so far, it's incredibly tolerable. Uh, we give it with BCG, and then they only get maintenance checkpoints. Uh, and so, you know, it's a phase one. We, you know, everyone's tolerating it well, and I'll be excited to talk about results. Yeah, that, that was my question. So you're giving it with the BCG then? Uh, so the way we work it is we, at, they come in for a week minus two. So before in starting BCG, they get a dose to make sure it's tolerable because the first patient we said, we don't know what's going to happen when we put this in the bladder. And then week zero, they get both uh, BCG and Pembro. And then they get six weeks of BCG. Every other week, they get the intravesical Pembro with the BCG. And then that's all the BCG they get. From there on out, they get maintenance Pembro. And mm -hmm. we, we do it pretty early on, every few weeks. And then by the time they get out to a year, they're only getting it every four weeks. Because the thought is that, you know, BCG, once again, you need to shut it down. You need to shut down the exhaustion. But we know that over time, people don't tolerate BCG as well as you'd like. So we'd love to be able to switch to an intravesical checkpoint as a maintenance therapy as well. So we're kind of testing two hypotheses there. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. You know, and you're probably not seeing any of the, uh, immuno, uh, the immune response or side effects that you see from, intra, from intravenous uh, uh, checkpoint inhibition. So. And certainly, we, we were able to let people come on this trial that, you know, have had, you know, autoimmune disease, and, and, and that they're really kind of black box, not allowed to do that when it's given IV, and we've had folks who've had pretty fulminant uh, autoimmune disease that we've been able to treat, and they have no side effects. And, oh, you know, nice. the nice thing is that we, we look at the PKs in the blood of the drug, and it doesn't appear to get into the, into the bloodstream, so it, it appears to just have a local effect. Oh, that's great. Well, good luck to you. That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you to Josh. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to thank Josh uh, Meeks for his uh, dropping some very excellent knowledge on us about uh, the cancer immunology, and um, thank you for the AUA. And again, this is the first of our uh, series of webinars. You'll be seeing four webinars on this top on this topic, and the next webinars will actually be um, uh, focusing on specific tumors.